It's the Lockdown Lowdown. I'm your host, Andrew Stupart, and we are going to continue to bring on some fabulous uh, special guests for the podcast. So today I have Trevor Kopp, who's a Hamilton-based uh, director, artist, and 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 enthusiast of the arts. Welcome to the Lockdown Lowdown, Trevor. Thanks very much, Andrew. Great to be here. Awesome. And just for those who don't know, Trevor runs Tottering Biped Theater in the Hamilton area. He's also, he, he's done many things in the arts, including being a dance instructor. He's been an actor, you name it, you know, a mime, you name it. He's done it um, for 20 plus years um, in the arts. And we couldn't be more happy to have you on the show. Thanks very much, Andrew. I'll, uh, I was going to say, I'm not uh, not known for my political expertise in the past, but I think about it all the time. I talk about it all the time. So happy to see what I can come up with. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. So um, Trevor, what brought us together on the show today, I was reading a post of yours on Facebook and you said something to the effect of leftists emphasize the effects of systems. And then in a particular example of a system would be the, the institution of capitalism. So emphasis, sorry, leftists emphasize the effects of say capitalism on the individual, but there's lacking a way to consider the individual responsibility in the face of these factors. So I think today what we're going to be talking about is all about philosophy, um, some of the institutions that we live under in our current way of living here in, in the developed world, specifically the institution of capitalism and how that may be broken and how, and how may, you know, how Socialism may be a, a good, a social safety net may be a good mechanism that we need to continue to employ here in Canada. But um, before we dive into into and get into the weeds on this, I want to give it over to you, Trevor, to give me um, give you an opportunity to expand on what you wrote on Facebook. Sure, sure. So, um, like I said, systems and the effect of systems on the individual seems to be the bulk of what's discussed on the left. So, what is how does racism and the institutions that protect racism and, and uphold racism, how do they continue to operate on an individual? And that's ducking ageism and, and, and um, patriarchy and all these kinds of systems. Um, we're always looking at this individual. Sure, they're having all these kinds of trouble. They're having trouble paying these bills, mm -hmm. but look at all the systems that are weighing them down. This person like mm -hmm. didn't have a chance looking at the systems they were born and came up with. And that makes a ton of sense. What's lacking is the yes, we are subjected to all these systems and all these these sort of problematic ways of being around us. But through that, how am I still responsible for my actions? How am I still responsible for how I treat the people around me and my own success? Uh, interesting. So when I what I read into that, because I know you had given different examples, like you did say, you know, racism patriarchy and then capitalism is kind of what I zoned in on just because that yeah, kind that of spoke sense. to me. Um, but we can, we can definitely cover like a whole potpourri, like a whole range of topics. Like it's, it's all good. Um, what I read into that was, yeah, like definitely on the left and to set the tone for the view, for the listeners, um, most listeners should know this by now. I, I started off very left lefty when I was in my kind of teens, twenties, and maybe even early thirties. And then over the last couple of years, I've, I haven't shifted to the right, but I've, I've become more moderate in my political alignment. So I wouldn't say like in, in some instances, I do lean a little bit to, toward the left on certain policies. And then there's other policies or societal issues 
where I lean towards the right. And so I would say it all kind of balances out making me a moderate just to set the tone. And then for you, you would kind of say, say you know, based on this post, it's very um, obvious that you would kind of categorize yourself if you had to as a leftist. Is that correct? Yeah, for sure. And when I ask these questions about personal responsibility, I yeah. mean, on one hand, that is wading into the right because yes, from, from the right, there's a conversation about pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yes, yes. Which I will point out is an ironic statement because the original intention of the words pull yourself by your bootstrap is uh -huh. do something that is impossible. Because if you have straps on your boot and you pull them, it, you're wearing the boot. It's not going to go up more. Like it, it you cannot <laughs> yeah, get yeah, for sure. So it's it's meant to be an ironic statement. Yes, yes. Uh, which is a point that's been lost, I think, over the last few decades. But anyway, um, it is a conversation where the left has a also has a, a extreme. I mean, the extreme right. I mean, has an extreme idea about everyone. You are responsible for figuring your own shit, and you know whatever yep. Yep. systems have left you, that's your problem. You know, if you're poor, that's your problem. You know, figure it out. You can still yep. get ahead. And I think that's been pretty thoroughly disproven as well. Yes, yes. But my feeling is that even though you can't say that categorically, it doesn't make sense, I don't think you can throw the entire conversation out. That's my point. Yeah, for sure. I think there's and, still room for a conversation about personal responsibility. 100, if yeah. Even if we moderate it. 100%. Sorry to interrupt you there. No, I agree. And I, and I, so at first when I read that, I found it a little bit counterintuitive because you said the response you're talking from a less leftist perspective and you're talking about lacking uh, in, in terms of um considering like the um the uh, the responsibility of the individual and as you just said when we talk about responsibility of the individual that yeah that typically does seem to be like a kind of a capitalist or kind of right leaning ideal so when you when you wrote that post it really intrigued me because it got me thinking about well yeah there's all these things weighing us down and i actually a lot of people would slap me in the face if i said this but i'm going to bring up intersectionality so you know and i you know and if anyone gets offended that's fine whatever mm -hmm. so if you're yeah, you can't talk about these things they're talking about intersectionality so it, yeah, it yeah. you know a lot of these i do watch some right wing kind of media just to like get a wide variety of like information like i get variety a, a variety of information from different sources so i have watched you know like the daily wire and and the breitbart's and all that sort of stuff not that i like not that i like adhere to those values but just to get a new perspective on something and they right. always they always um make fun of inter you know they always ridicule intersectionality but i but f the way that i understand it, it is a you know it's a very legitimate concept where and this is me dumbing it down like to the to the most simple level for myself to explain it um is like if you are gay and black then you have two you're being just you're, you're often being discriminated discriminated against in two ways right or if you have a disability and you're a lesbian, you're probably going to be discriminated in two ways, you know? So it's the idea that the more different minority groups um, or underserved groups that you belong to, probably your life is going to be more difficult because those of those multiple factors weighing down on you. Did I, to the best of your knowledge, Trevor, did I, in a simplistic way, did I explain that correctly? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, intersectionality is a necessary concept because culturally we default to white men, to able-bodied sure. white men. Like that's that's sort of our cultural understanding that that's the norm that everything comes from. So it's it's part of dismantling that's that, that centering of that group. But you know, that's what we're all working with. For sure. So I just, I wanted to bring that front and center because I think that we have to think of 
Um, if you've ever played, I remember when I was little, we used to play like the horse race game where you would, you have a bunch of characters, you, um, you know, lined up on the, on this little play um, surface and you would roll the dice and it's like a little horse race. But what you have to remember is if you are born with a disability, if you're a person of color, if you're a woman, if you're LGBTQ, then you are one or two steps back. And for each one of those things that you are under the minority, uh, under different minority groups, you are one or two steps back from the the people who are at the this this part of the, you know, the starting line. So the way I think about the capitalist rat race is if you were born in a family with an alcoholic and you happen to be um, someone who's not white, et cetera, et cetera, you're probably, you're probably starting three or four steps back on this right. rat race than everyone else. And I think that's um, a sentiment that the right wing conservative uh, group has kind of dismissed. Um, right. And I think we have to pay special attention to that. But the right but, wing, the, the right wing um, groups, as it's organized in North America, is based on white male experience. So they have only to lose by these conversations, because in these conversations, if we're constantly centering white men and then we're pointing out, you know, if you're a black man, that's that's a, that's a that's harder. Well, then all the white men are like, oh, wait, well, no, no. Are you saying that it's less hard for me? Like, it's just this. This sort of very defensive position. Yes. yes. That, that, that's always going, no, no, you cannot say that things aren't hard for me, you know, or that they're harder for someone else than me. That's unfair. And I think it's so reactive and so limiting yes. and yes. so self-serving. I, I don't have a lot of time for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, for sure, for sure. And I think it's like when people try to take back there was the Black Lives Matter movement, which was came it came out of a very so many instances of horrific excuse me police brutality that have occurred like even within the last five years you have george floyd amongst who's just one of many um situations and so there was this 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 huge movement um you know more or less on the left i would say um although not always but it was like the whole black lives matter and the idea wasn't to say that like hispanic lives white lives French lives, German lives don't matter. It's that in this particular instance, we want to highlight the fact that, you know what, it's not okay to step on someone's neck and and um, have them asphyxiate and suffocate to death because they happen to be black. And so the whole point of that movement was to bring, bring attention to police brutality and stand up for the black community. And here you have some of these kind of right wing, a lot of the time kind of white folks who are saying, you know what, all lives matter. And they're trying to be altruistic and saying that all lives matter. Well, I think you might have missed the point of that whole movement kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so that's, I mean, I think we can agree on lots of those things that I think we have to, we kind of have to um, look at these topics as being more complicated than I think sometimes the right kind of makes them, they kind of um, glaze over things uh, in a certain way. But Which when you... I, I agree yeah. with you. And that's, and that's exactly what I'm asking, I guess, for the left. If we look at oppressed groups and we look at people with minorities, what conversation about accountability is still appropriate? What conversation mm -hmm. about accountability is still present in there? Mm -hmm. And and this is what it came to. It. I, I, mm -hmm. I got a thought on what that looks like. I don't think this is a very helpful thought politically because it's not very measurable or anything like that. But the thought I've come to is I think that regardless of whatever status you were born with and advantages or disadvantages you're born with everyone is responsible to heal okay everyone is responsible to take whatever they're given and figure out how do i heal from this how do i keep advancing from this how do i not let this keep pulling me down mm -hmm. and that's, that's that those stakes are very different person to person mm -hmm. but i think that means 
I just sort of extrapolate because I look at my personal relationships and the, you know, you know, whether romantic or personal, otherwise, and friends yes. that I have. And I, and I thought, of course, we all know people who have their damage, and all people yes. have their, got their their problems and their traumas, and, and however you want to describe it, everyone's got their stuff. But what I look for are people who are actively working it out, who are actively mm -hmm. undoing things and resolving their baggage. Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing that I look at on a political level as I go there are people who are in way way worse shape than I am dealing with much more than I am and through that are you cleaning that up are you moving forward mm -hmm. are you doing, or are you moving back so that's mm -hmm. still a responsibility that I ask for people uh, and that makes sense because for me what I just drew from that uh your point just there is that there are there are oftentimes people who are always playing the victim and then sometimes it really is like it's a real they really were victimized right like if you if you've had abuse in your home or if you've been just if you've been pulled over by the cops simply because of your skin color if you've been denied a job because you're a woman and because there's there's the stigma well maybe she's going to go start a family we don't want to hire someone who's going to be out of the workforce and what blah, blah 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 if you've been discriminated against or abused in, in any sort of way like obviously yeah like you're a victim and, you, and there's you, there's there's time needed there to heal but the but i think at some point like you have to take ownership for your your yeah, your growth in or in terms of healing so you know for someone so even for myself like in the past like i've had i've i've had bouts of depression and 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 there i got into a place where i would blame every all oh, the government's not doing enough for me or oh, my work's not compassionate enough for me or oh you know what you know this date didn't work out because you know because but that person my, didn't un yeah and my argument is that for for people in those circumstances which are many people i think it's ultimately disempowering for me yes. to yes. look at these huge systems and to blame them. Now, yes. it makes perfect sense. I think those systems are probably paying a huge factor in you know why things suck. Like, yeah. absolutely, it's not wrong. It's just the question is, is it useful? How can yes. we make that useful? And we can, there are ways that we can, you know, especially as large populations resist mm -hmm. systems and react to these mm -hmm. systems. We need to do that. But in the meanwhile, you as an individual person still got to move on. You still got to, yeah. you still got to live and you got to, you got to thrive. Yeah. You got to find a way forward. And we don't know that we're going to solve the problem of patriarchy in our lifetimes. Like yeah. we don't know that, we don't know that capitalism is going anywhere in any short yeah. term. So in the meanwhile, how do we live? How do we survive? And I still think that it goes back to healing. Yeah. To um, healing. And so what I was going to say, not that this is not that I've been necessarily discriminated against in certain ways, you know, I know the viewers can't see me, but I'm, a, I'm pretty, white cisgender looking male right here but uh, what i would say is i'm just going to use this as a personal example because it's close to me so you know having having had depression a couple bouts of depression in my life you know it gets as i said earlier it gets very easy to blame external factors on why i'm feeling depressed or why i'm not successful or this and that but what i do is i think it all starts with i almost think about like a little arrow in my head right and this is going to sound weird but there's a little the little arrow can be pulling pushing downward or upward and as soon as i get that arrow point, pointing upward it thinks but it starts to flip my, my mentality to you know what yesterday was a shitty day i i felt really terrible about this this why this that and the other 
But you know what? Today, I'm going to have a positive mindset. I'm going to forget about what happened yesterday. I'm going to call my friends. I'm going to call my mother. I'm going to call my relatives. I'm going to have that conversation with people who support me and love me. I'm going to, you know, send out another. If I'm not happy at work, I'm going to send out another resume. I'm going to network with someone. It's about having that little voice inside instead of being a negative voice, being a positive voice and having that one little step forward of being positive starts a snow snowball effect. Of, of seeing your life in a more positive light. And then the more good things you do for the, yourself, the more you start to feel positive energy around you, I would say. Because we think we need these, these two countervailing forces moving. I'm thinking about this statement, act global, um, think global, act locally. I'm thinking okay. about this okay. and applying that to our personal lives where I, I think about, I identify as a queer man. Okay. And, I, and, I, and I consider the systems around me like I don't have kids. And as an adult, you know, moving, working through my forties, I can really feel how the world is not set up for you to not have kids. The world is set up for me to supposed to have kids and supposed to work through all these yeah. steps. Yeah. Um, so I think about these systems, but I go, so I think globally, I think, how are the systems around me failing mm -hmm. to serve me, you know, because I'm, I'm, I, I'm not, you know, a straight man having kids, like, because I'm not in that stream of behavior, mm -hmm. I'm aware of how the systems around me are treating me oddly, are treating me differently, mm -hmm. are not doing things. Um, but all of that is something that I can react to and think about. I can know it can affect me, but I can't change that overnight. I can change, yeah. I, can look at, I can look at a micro scale and going, what can I do about that within the world that I inhabit? Yeah. So now there is a danger on the other side of total personal responsibility i'm thinking of like yoga culture and you know i just need to imagine my perfect world and, and uh, culture, right there is the other side where i go if i just imagine that my life is perfect it will be well uh, well i just don't know anyone who's ever make that happen i really don't and if and the individuals that have made that happen they're you know one in 20 million so <laughs> all the energy yeah. goes towards these exceptions which i don't think yeah. helps us in the majority it doesn't help us and i I go, we still need to think, yes, I can change the world. I can change my world. I can change yes, my world. Yes. I can change the environment that I'm in. And and I'm just aware of the larger systems and not contributing towards mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. Trying not to let that rule my life. And, that's and there's that's the, the, I think the great the great challenge. No, and I think I think you're you're right. So there's a couple of things I want to say. So I have done yoga for about 10 years on and off, not consistently, but in those times where I go into those deep meditation sessions, we'll have these, sometimes you have a session where it's like a lot of physical based yoga, like vinyasa kind of stuff. And then you'll go into a deep meditation at the end. And I do feel very grounded. If I was worried about a potentially a relationship issue or a fight with my, with my significant other, if I've had, uh, you know, if I was worried about something at work or worried about the greatest, biggest social issue that's been happening, then a lot of those cares melt away. But the thing is the next day they're going to be back again. They, it only, yoga is only a temporary meditation is only a temporary solution, right? So to your point, yeah, yeah, like it does, yoga does help, but it only, I would argue it only maybe, like you said, helps that one in 20 million people really find their nirvana, whatever. Um, but I think it's, it's the total solution. The total solution. 20, yeah, one yeah, yeah, yeah. People. yeah, yeah, it yeah. It contributes yeah. for the rest of us, but we've for got sure. past that. But let me, let me say about uh, something I was thinking about. So two things. First of all, I think you have done a tremendous job with tottering biped theater, bringing a lot of these societal issues to the forefront, and you and and if I'm you know you've taken issues that are important to you, and as an and as someone who's an artistic director, 
uh, an actor, a dancer, and an and artist in all sorts of ways, you have kind of done that. what you've just said, which is taking global issues and kind of helped um, examine them under a microscope at, at sort of a local level by doing your, your Hamilton-based theater. Would you not, would you disagree or agree? Yeah, that's, I mean, our whole goal is, I think art is about creating a forum that we can use to, to settle these issues issues used to sit with each other and going so where are we at with all this and for me a lot of the forgive me for being oversimplifying but a lot of the bubblegum art that's out there that's the low-flying stuff that's easy to get a hand of is very dangerous because it it just it 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 gives you the impression that art is just about escapism and i for me it's the opposite this is the place where we actually can sit and deal with the heaviest things yeah. which means the opposite of escapism in in many many ways and that's always inspiring me. I love the idea that in an empty room on a blank stage, that is the space where you can battle it out about anything. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, whatever's happening in, on the other side of the world, we can resolve the issue in, in a space with people sitting together. That's ultimately what we need. Um, I want to just jump over for a moment, a moment, if you don't mind, Andrew. Um, we started the conversation talking a bit about referring to socialism. And here in Hamilton, they were doing a pilot on um, uh, what's it called automatic um, income. Yes. Yep. Um, you know, doing a pilot program. What's what's the word I'm looking for? You're just looking uh, for universal basic income. Yeah. Yeah. UBI. Yep. Um, so they had it going here in Hamilton, and it was working beautifully. And to me, like, so prior to this conversation, Andrew and I were talking a bit about how does socialism work in and all this, you know, because these these are all different scales that we're working in and out of. So when I think about capitalism, first of all. So much bullshit comes out about it from the states because socialism threatens big business. That's the only reason. And you will hear all kinds of bullshit coming from American media about everything that's all the horrible things social socialism means. And that's all funded by big business who is afraid of it, which probably means it's a brilliant thing. But the to me, the bottom line concern we have as a society about socialism is what about the freeloaders? That's the question that everyone's worried about. Because in socialism, we are no longer motivated by income. You know, let's say we all get universal basic income, and then that leads us all in a more in a more power to choose the kinds of work that we want to do and engage in. Okay. And the big social concern that I keep encountering is what about the freeloaders? What about the people who don't want to work? Yeah. All right. I may be very, very idealist in this sense. Yeah. But my feeling is that if we have universal basic income, if people all have food on the table and a roof over their heads, and that's taken care of, after that, I think people seek meaning. Mm -hmm. Meaningful mm -hmm. work. I think they seek it out. I think they would have an appetite for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm someone who is, I am both blessed by the privilege and I've worked my ass off to find a kind of work that I'm really passionate mm -hmm. about. And so... I feel terrible for people who do work, even very well-paid work that they hate. Yeah. Like I can't totally. imagine, you know, spending eight hours a day doing something that I hate. I, 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 I as a person, I couldn't do it. I just yeah. couldn't. But, and my feeling is exactly that. Maybe there's five to 10, 10% percent of the population that would never seek work that benefits, say the rest of the world for free. Right. Maybe. But personally, I can live with that. And if someone's in that state of being, then maybe in a couple of years, they won't be anymore because maybe they'll get sick of, you know, just, you know, enjoying the high life, like relaxing, enjoying it. You'll do that for a while. 
but then you will at some point go, yeah, but what the hell am I doing here? Like, what yes. can I, I think that'll come for everyone. And, um, and I guess I'm not a person, like I've never really been money motivated. That's just yeah. never come to me. So to me, it, it appeals to me as a perfect system of being. Interesting. There's a, yeah, I just have to take a second to unpack there. So something that, 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 cause I've thought about this, right. Um, Sorry, let me gather my thoughts for a second. So there, there is, there's a couple things I want to, and bear with me, there's a couple things I want to put out there. First of all, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think, I think something that you kind of addressed there was kind of people moving towards self-fulfillment, self-enlightenment. And if we, and if our basic, if the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, security, shelter, food, water, warmth all that if all that is met then we can if we have our basic needs met for us what we need to live and and basically survive in society then we can potentially climb that that pyramid of maslow's hierarchy of needs towards things that actually fought that we find meaningful so for you that might be you know miming teaching a dance class or putting on a tottering biped production for me or uh you know one of our mutual colleagues um evan stevens that may mean you know writing the next great script or directing the next you know the next uh short film for you know tiff or sundance whatever so i think for me i think you and i can both agree that we definitely have like our test artistic endeavors and i've been fortunate that even as i've migrated away from television into digital media there's a lot of artistic elements to it so in my current line of work you know i'm running ad campaigns and yes i'm part of the big corporate machine but i still get to work with designers i get to work with copywriters all that sort of stuff so i'm very lucky but you know someone like my my you know aunt who's an accountant um you you know i hope i'm sure she's not going to listen but you could see that that being an accountant has aged her and I and I say that in the nicest way possible because I don't think anyone really wants to be an accountant you want to be an accountant because it's a stable job and you make money right, right. so I would ask I would I think the first question I would ask is if for all the accountants out there if if all of a sudden everyone had a universal basic income how many people would actually still want to be accountants is the first question i'm going to ask and, and i think that there is a small population like i think there are people who love math it's hard for me to for imagine. sure i was always on the other side of that equation yeah, yeah there are people who love that and if we find for example you know i can't imagine a huge percent of the population really wanting to do data entry you know, for, for example, sure, for sure. totally, totally mind numbing jobs out there. Yes. And that's what I think AI is for. Yes. Yes. For. Machines are for. They're yes. for replacing all the shit that we don't want to do. And yes. giving us the room to focus on what we do want to do. Yes. And, and that's been put out there as a collective vision of where we're going as a society. But the capitalist systems and the billionaires, they don't want that that flies against their desires that flies against their needs because if we have ubi then who's serving who's doing all the jobs in the factories that they run that they don't want to do like they they've got to solve all these problems yes. you know, they can attract all the workforce they want because there isn't a ubi in place so people are desperate enough to do horrible jobs correct but, we don't, but these horrible jobs are replaceable we don't need these jobs anymore correct really, so it's it's just it is the systems that got us to this place that are now holding us back from moving forward. You made some very good points there, and I have thought a great deal about this. In fact, on the podcast, we, you know, my colleague Alex, Misha, and myself have spoken a great deal about AI, and you see AI, machine learning, artificial intelligence, 
automation is coming to the forefront more, um, more and more often and in greater, greater scale, um, especially in the last couple of years. So automation is definitely something that would be, have to be, that's definitely intrinsically linked to universal basic income because the more people's jobs who are, who have become replaced by machines, the more people are, are going to be dependent on um, a guaranteed live, uh, livable income. So I can definitely see the relationship there. I also understand your point about why the capitalists and the CEOs and the big corporate entities don't want to see that. Um, I have to ask, I have, as a follow-up, I do have to pose a question. Have you read any material or even the novel um, uh, BS Jobs by David Graeber? No, what's that about? Okay, so basically it's a it's a novel as well as there's like a collection of articles that people have written um, about B. It's basically about BS Jobs. And in a, right. um, I'm going to try and summarize it in 30 seconds here for the podcast, but essentially this David Graver fellow, he was an economist. He's passed away, but he was an economist. He was a very intellectual kind of philosopher type guy. And, and he talked about the fact that, you know, if we weren't in this jail cell of having to, you know, being dictated down to us by, by capitalistic based society that we have to be in this 40 hour work week, we probably wouldn't need to be. And examples, are, and, and there's probably a lot of jobs out there that are 100% unnecessary be it from automation or just because of the inefficient structures of of corporations so for example middle managers who are box tickers you could probably and i've seen this happen when i worked in television when i was when the when the television industry was on a decline due to lack of advertising revenue a lot of middle managers director level or supervisor were cut out because they don't it was found that they were inefficient and they weren't really adding value to the shareholders or to the organization right so there's middle there's middle managers and box tickers um there's kind of these luxurious types types of positions like um uh someone who like what do you call it a uh bellhop or someone who opens the door for you or a receptionist where you could probably do that work yourself so if you're if you're an executive you could probably you probably don't need a receptionist so there's this whole list of jobs that are um either redundant or unnecessary in society and by the time you strip away a lot of these bs jobs there's like <laughs> there's not as many left as you would think no, no. And for some reason, like we have this mentality, this Protestant work ethic mentality that not working is criminal. Yes. You know, how do we get over that? How do we go not working meaningfully? That should be the what's criminal. Yes. Yes. So a lot, uh, lot to dive into. I def for the, for the listeners, I definitely, I didn't do a great job explaining BS jobs. So the, for the listeners who are interested, definitely check out David Graeber. He just talks about, yeah, like these, there's different categories of jobs um, in, in the, you know, where people are spending 40 hours a week during doing something where they could probably do their job in like maybe 20 hours. Um, but to your point, Trevor, you're talking about meaningful work. I agree. I have never been one of those people who could, I could never fathom working in a factory. I could never fathom doing data entry um, or doing these monotonous re repetitive jobs. I did that for a while, but for me, I like having some job variety, some autonomy and some creativity in my job. Um, but I am going to ask you, Trevor, you, you know, this idea of, and the NDP, the new democratic party here in, uh, Canada has has echoed your sentiments about the universal basic income, the idea that everyone gets universal health care, but they also get a universal everyone gets like a um, a deposit in their bank account once or twice a month that gives them enough 
money to sustain them for the base for the you know the basic needs, right? Um, there's also been talk about universal uh, vision care. There's also been talk with the NDP of universal dental care, right? And so you know all these things sound wonderful and lovely, and I would love to have you know my teeth cleaned without having to pay you know two hundred dollars to go to the dentist. But the, the 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 harsh reality is is we just came out of this pandemic and we just spent hundreds of billions of dollars with CERB and other different um, benefits to help individuals as well as small businesses who were struggling during the pandemic to, due to these closures of, of businesses. And so we we gave out a lot of social assistance during the pandemic, rightfully so. But now Canada is in, I think, in around $2 trillion worth of debt. And our our deficit is laughable. Um, and so the, the 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 problem that I have is given our current, cur currently the way society is structured is I just don't see there being money for it. Or if there is money for it, money is created as debt. So the more that we that we uh, lavish society um, with these with these wonderful things like universal income and dental care and vision care, the more that we create a tremendous debt for Canada. Would you not agree? It's a problem, but I think that, and uh, again, I'm just going into um, what I think is most more clearly articulated in our time by Bernie Sanders. Okay. Um, the, the, the clear solution is obvious, and what's painful is how long it's taking us to get there. We need to tax the goddamn rich. That's all we need to do is get the rich to pay their part, and not even saying, hey, you're going to pay more because you're rich and everybody not even saying that like everyone pays whatever 10 percent, 20 percent, whatever number we agree yeah, on yeah problem solved yeah we have a system that wealthy people have continually reinvented for yes. their own benefit yes because they, they buy off the systems so the politicians are afraid to have real conversations about taxing the rich because they will alienate their big donors if they do that if they have that conversation but mm -hmm. they need to have that conversation anyway and if we are looking at the wealthy, the wealthy, wealthy businesses, wealthy individuals, and taxing them appropriately, not at even at a higher level than anybody else, just mm -hmm. appropriately, we would have what we need. Fair enough. And that, and that, I have heard that that argument again and again and again. And I think yeah. the counter, not that I disagree with you, I agree sure. that that you know, even if everyone was at like say a twenty percent mark and and just universally at a twenty percent tax rate, and if the and if the if the elites were not if it wasn't as easy for the elites to find all these different loopholes, whether that's off, whether that's shell corporations or offshore banking or whatever, um, definitely we would we would be able to um, our taxes, the the revenue that we bring in from the taxes, if we were taxing the rich appropriately, would be more than enough to cover some of these basic um, kind of social safety net things that we've been talking about for sure um the problem prom, this the problem is is that there's always going to be people like elon musk or, or donald trump or whoever who find ways around it and it's like how do you solve that how do you like who has to stand up like yeah how do we solve this like how 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 is how as individuals do we convince the okay, government to solve this the conversation about a uh, universal tax uh, has come up among organizations like the UN. They are talking about how do we make it so that there is nowhere in the world that a billionaire can go to and hide all their money and, and use it as a tax haven. 
So we can coordinate this. Yeah. Like we just have to look at organizations like UNESCO and UN and like these, you know, world world economic forums. Those are where those conversations need to move to because the wealthy, as you said, they're they're pretty wily. They'll find ways to get around it if we yeah. let them. So we just have to make sure we close those loopholes. And yeah, and it's the idea that like once you become so and I was watching a video just a couple of days ago as I was preparing for this conversation, is that the idea that the the people who are in power who have the most power the most money, the most power, the biggest corporations, the most shares of those corporations, the the elites at the top have so much power that they actually control how the system works, which is which is a very difficult situation to get out of. This is um, the entire scenario as imagined by Marx. Yes. That, that the wealthy would basically corrupt the systems of government yes. and twist the system into their favor. It's exactly Correct. as described. It's all come about. Let me just, let me, can I throw in one other thought? I just had this thought the other day. It might be original, but again, someone else can say, actually, I'm ripping off somebody that I hadn't. Okay. <laughs> Dripping off, but here was a thought. The problem is the concept of a company. So, okay. what's interesting to me is I was reading about how capitalism flourished when the idea of a company came into being. And what they mean is that, you know, you make bread and you make a lot of bread. And then one day you make a bad batch and people get sick. Well, historically, if you made a bad batch, you, Andrew, are on the line for those people getting sick and you're yes. in a hell of a lot of trouble. Yes. But then we invent this concept of the <laughs> bread company. Yes. That is not Andrew. It's this other person. It's the bread company. And in that sense, people get sick and everyone blames the company. And everyone looks at the company's behavior. And we accept the fact that yes. Andrew being limited has a mandate of growth. And yes. oh God, you just can't afford to pay your workers. Well, that's just how it is. You know, you got to do what you got to do. And all yes. oh, you pay those people we sued didn't work or did work. That's how it is. So what companies are humans with no accountability. Yeah, it's interesting to look at it that way. I was thinking about that and I've I've watched numerous documentaries on netflix about the corporation and i think there's one called like saving capitalism something like that so i've i've seen all these documentaries and when i when i was you know about 10 or 15 years ago when i first found out what a league what what encompassed the legal entity that is a corporation it made me laugh because it's you know under the law a corporation has the same kind of rights or it's it's kind of looked at as as being uh, a human like you say and so there's limited liability even amongst um, you know, um, executives and stuff like that. Sure. And, and so, and so I understand why that sounds ridiculous. Generally speaking, um, I would, I mean, I'm about eight, 75 to 80% of the way there in terms of agreeing with you. I'll give you, I'm going to give you an exception. So, and this just came to the top of my head. So I recently joined the, it's a volunteer position. Okay. So it's a bit, it's a bit different. This is, I have to have the ca the caveat here that this is a volunteer position. I, sure. I recently joined on a voluntary basis the board of directors for my condo corporation. I have a townhouse here in um, in North York, and so we as a there's there's five of us on this board, okay. And so we are like the top level management. We are everyone who who pays common fees. All the owners of these um these townhouses pay common fees and we all not only do we own our, our own our individual units but we all are shareholders of the common elements so i own you know say 3.5% of the common elements you know my neighbor owns 3.25% of the common elements so we all own a portion of the pool the 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 courtyards etc okay 
as right. me as an off, not an officer, but me as a director of this corporation, even though everyone else, you know, all these owners are shareholders, I am a, I get a, a vote in major decisions amongst five, uh, four other people. So we have to have, we have to vote and then achieve quorum. And once we have three out of five people voting on a particular issue, then we move forward. And we have a property manager who doesn't live at the property, but is a separate company who manages all of the directives that we do. So if we want to, you know, open up the pool, it's the management's company, the management company's responsibility to hire the lifeguards, hire the, you know, people to maintain the pool, whatever, take care of the grass, whatever. Now, the problem is, if if we if the board now I would never do this I would always vote no to doing something illegal but let's say a con, my condo board or anyone's condo board does something illegal and three out of five board members sa says to you know to pay someone under the table or says to you know do something that's you know right. tells our superintendent to do something dangerous that goes against safety regulations I don't want to be liable for that because I voted against it. So in that particular instance, I would want the blame to go to the corporation and not to Andrew Stupart because as a board member, I voted against doing that dangerous thing. Does right. that make sense? Right. But are the people who voted for it responsible? So I think in some ways, like I think there could be like legal, there could be liability, but in, in, a, in a certain like into a certain effect, like the corporation kind of shields them from it. So it's 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 kind of weird. It's it, it, it is a weird concept, this whole corporation and being able yeah. to shield yourself from responsibility. I, I, I came to think of it as an enfant terrible, if you know this term, like it's this child, it's a misbegotten child in the world because it it functions, it has the rights that we do, but we as humans, we don't want to be horrible. We don't want to do horrible things, but we are relatively okay with knowing that someone else did something horrible and saying, oh, well, you know, there it is. If it's out of sight, we'll accept it more. And corporations let us do that. I need my job. I need to make my $20,000 a year. Oh, my corporation needs to fire all these people for me to do that. Oh, well, the corporation did it, not me. Like it's it's a great way to pawn off things that don't feel good. Oh yeah, 100%. And I was just using the, I was using like my condo corporation as like a really kind of weird example because in that particular instance, for okay. me, for me, someone like who's volunteering, as a volunteer, I don't want to catch flack for like, for something so you know how do i explain this for, yeah for me as someone who's just volunteering their time and tr trying to be part of my condo corporations community and all that sort of stuff i don't i do want the corporation to shield me because i don't want to take response i don't want to be held accountable um for something especially if i'm here on a volunteer doing this on a volunteer basis that said i would for me i always want to do the common sense solution so am i going to say to our our condo supervisor to, you know, go up on a ladder, um, even though she may or may not have ladder training? Probably not. Am I going to ask, am I going to like try and get kickbacks from like the management company? Probably not because I'm a pretty moral individual. But to your point, there's a lot of, you know, I, I would say that maybe what 10% or 13% of executive class, especially CEO, have um, psychopathic tendencies. Totally. That's a good word for it. Yeah, there was actually a stats on this. This is not. This is not just me. No, I've read the same thing that like the characters like Wolf on Wall Street, like that you know that Dipre DiCaprio plays. These people are psychotic. These people have have deep emotional issues, and those deep emotional issues have enabled them to climb to the top of the capitalist pile. Yeah.
So would you would you argue then that in order that something that's fundamentally wrong with our cur current cap um, institution of capitalism is that in order to climb the ladder to the manager, director, you know, VP, and then essentially CEO role, do you have to have a little bit of psychopath uh, in you? Yeah, it, it encourages that behavior. Absolutely. And we also know like we work on the myth of pull pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yes. When you look at the great billionaires, you know, we know these are not people who came from poverty. These are people whose parents were had a hundred million dollars. And these are people that were and who financed their failures over and over again until they found their success, which is not an opportunity that most people have. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I and I I would argue that maybe one or two of like the one percent did, you know, and I forget her name, but like I believe and I'll have to fact I hate doing this when I when I put a fact out there, something that I believe and I have to fact check it after the show. But I believe that the the former CEO of PepsiCo had a very like had to climb her way up in, into that position and didn't come from wealth, but I'd have to double check that. So there are exceptions to the rule where there are some CEOs and chairmen and executives and vice presidents who did not necessarily come from, from, um, from, you know, from wealth being passed down to them through the, through, through the generations. But to your point, I would argue that's probably the exception and not the rule. Yeah, I would, I would agree. So let me ask you this. We've, we've talked about universal basic income, bullshit jobs, corporations. We've also talked about automation. We've had a great conversation thus far in the podcast. There was one, you know, something I've always leaned on as an example of a socialist regime gone wrong. And I just want to hear your thoughts about this and how Canada might do it better. So back in, I think it was 2016 under the, um, the socialist government in Venezuela. Venezuela um, has had socialist, uh, the socialist party in, in power since I think 1999. And um, back in 2016, there was a, a lot going on and, and kind of to give the context of what was happening um, in Venezuela around that time was the idea that there was a major redistribution of resources using the income from oil. So, so oh. Venezuela, Venezuela is a ink, you know, one of the biggest commodities, if not the biggest commodity that they export is oil. Okay. And so their, their GDP, their gross domestic product relies on oil. And so what was, excuse me, what was happening was this socialist government, the socialist party that was in power was basically funding education, housing, healthcare, all these wonderful social safety net things with the huge revenues that they were bringing in from oil. Now, that sounds lovely. You know, everyone gets, you know, a better education, more teachers, whatever. The problem is, is that this is because the government was so huge and because they were um, putting restrictions on other corporations and how much they can charge, you know, pricing that they can charge for certain commodities and this and the government was owning the means of production and owning the oil, um, basically having control over over oil production. What happens is. Um, when prices fluctuate and let's say they take let's say prices take a nosedive then all of a sudden all that 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 cap that capital or whatever you want to call it that's available for public spending 
all of a sudden disappears and then the economy goes down the toilet, which is what happened around 2016, 2017. And all of a sudden it costs a billion dollars for, for a piece of bread because of hyperinflation. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we, how do we, and looking to the NDP, for example, here in Canada, how can the NDP possibly um, uh, implement something like UBI uh, universal pharmacare, uh, or dental care, etc., without falling into a kind of, I hate to say it, but a pure socialist kind of trap like what we've seen in other countries? I th- Well, first of all, the hard truth is they need to accept that they're going to get poorer. And just accepting that is, is the ultimate block we're talking about. I, th- I compare like Alberta oil sands, that money and the legacy of that money to me is very comparable to slavery. In the deep South, how many decades, how many generations did it take to break the deep South of slavery? Because slavery was how they built their wealth. Mm-hmm. They built the, you know, the plantations, and all the wealth that came from that was all on the back of slavery. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, I think that so many of those Americans knew for all those generations, knew in their hearts this was wrong just knew it but that money is so has such a corrupting influence mm-hmm. it causes people to do such gymnastics of logic mm-hmm. about why they're going to why it's important that they keep it that we've got all this evil shit coming out of it and it's the same thing with the oil sands we got to stop we know we got to get off this gas we know we have to quit it and the fact that it's taken our culture so long to get off gas, this is such a painfully slow process, is again because the, the billionaires keep dragging it out over and over again. So Alberta is about to become poorer. And oh, yeah. all people with their big houses, you know, and their and their multiple cars, they're gonna have to get over that because that's not the re- that's not the reality moving forward. And the big challenge for them is can we get over our our endless need for money in face of the need to save the planet and the fact that you know we can't breathe anymore so it's just a, a great mm. big test that they need to undergo because ubi it's all still possible if we're just taxing the wealthy and i think that getting off gas is ugh, it's again it's an intersecting mm-hmm. issue super important one so you made you talked about climate change and i 100 percent you know percent and behind you in in terms of i i think that what what the the big corporations are doing is they always downplay the effects of climate change and something that donald donald trump said i we did a whole episode we've done episodes after episode on donald trump and all his misinformation and lies and everything but there's one particular lie by donald trump that really made me laugh when i was looking into it the fact that that he says that china is making up the idea fabricating the idea of climate change in order wow. to influence us politics in order for us um you know citizens of the us to become more client uh climate change focused in order to um bring down uh productivity in the states and outsource more of that productivity to china right and so and so I think there is a lot of climate change denial, and we do see a lot of climate change denial on the right, which is very, um, is just absolutely ludicrous. Um, so I'm 100% behind you. I believe that the next vehicle that I will purchase, assuming that that the the you know uh, prices correct themselves, I'm very much open to buying a hybrid or electric vehicle for my next vehicle, 100%. And there's lots of things we can do to be more client. Um, 
uh, climate change focused. But something else I wanted to take out of my Venezuela example was the fact that the government got so large and the people became so uh, dependent on the government for everything is that they they had a lot of cha challenges arising when their gross domestic product um, went down as a, as a result of prices of oil going down. So do you think that if that, that, that government on the flip side, do you think that government government can can become too big and too powerful? And is there a downside to um, the idea of government having more and more control? Oh, absolutely. The amount of checks and balances that are needed to make sure because corruption finds its way in. It finds its way into government, into business, into whatever pockets it can. So having the really responsible system of checks and balances so that different parts of government are looking at the other parts and going, so what does this become really about and who are you really serving here? I think that's key. And uh, just look at look at the pocketbooks. Who's making a ton of money? Like here's here's a system that I criticize locally in Canada. Right now, charitable, like I my theater company is a charitable status yeah. organization. Yeah. What does it mean? when a charity status organization has people in it making a million dollars. What does that mean? And when you give to the organization, are you actually contributing towards that cause or contributing mm -hmm. towards $1 million incomes on yeah. people? Yeah. So like, these are all systems that I go, if once there are systems where a few people are making a lot of money, there are problems. That's just going to come with it. I think the entire phenomenon of people, one individual making 50 times more than another individual, that whole phenomenon needs to stop completely. Lots to unpack there. No, I, I'm just thinking this through as you speak, but you made some good points. And definitely, you know, I've done charity work before where I was going door to door as a sales agency. So this was a sales agency working right. on behalf of a charity. And you think... Well, they have enough to pay me commission for every for for every person that I sign up for their monthly payment plan of say it's save the children or whatever happens to be. So they have enough money to pay me. They have enough money to pay the owner of the company that I work for who works for our organization. They have enough money to run these fat, you know, these TV, radio, and digital media, social media campaigns. They have enough money to you know, pay the president of that company, like you said, like with, with by the time you add space salary bonuses, you know, whatever else kind of incentives, a million dollars. So then you have, so when you do make a charitable donation, and I've had this conversation with my parents as well, who are pretty focused on, you know, whenever they can giving back to the community and in, in the way of donations, you have to look at that little chart that shows you for every dollar you spend, how much of it actually goes right. toward the, the, the cause Right. Getting getting vaccines in the hands of the in the arms of the children or feeding the children or stopping the, you know, giving Ukraine more armaments or whatever it happens to be. So but but the but the thing is, you have to really carefully look at that and align yourselves to the ones that that are actually where we're more than 50 cents of that dollar are going towards the actual um Per, you know, cause itself, but you know, so you have to be very cognizant of the charities that you, that you give to. And I, I've learned that lesson myself. Um, I totally lost my train of thought of where I was going this. Oh yeah. So, you know, do you think that there's a way you said checks and balances, is it possible to have a large government, a large kind of socialist focused government? Like we, you know, let's say the NDP came into power. Let's say right. Jagmeet Singh came into power. All of a sudden, we have socialized pharmacare, healthcare, you know, universal basic in income. What's stopping Jagmeet Singh from becoming corrupt? 
Yeah, I mean, that's we have to rely on solid government systems to answer that. We have to rely on a solid opposition group that's watching those. We have to rely on transparency that the NDP's books are public information. Yeah. And, you know, any kickbacks that the party members, top party members get, property they own, nice dinners to go on to, those are all things that need to be public information. I think that if if they're public and transparent with money specifically, where the money goes, who's spending it, where it's accumulating, I think that's the key to making sure that the corruption doesn't uh, doesn't go to proportion. There'll always be some. Hopefully, we keep it to a low level, and For hopefully, sure. we just we keep stamping it out with just being as honest and forthright as we can. For sure. And I don't want to take too much more time here, but this has been a great discussion. I'll kind of leave kind of one more point as we begin to wrap up this philosophical conversation today, Trevor. Is would you, especially when we're talking about Canada here with our social safety nets, our social spending, would you agree that governments in certain ways, and I'll give, and I will use Canada's healthcare system, they are essentially monopolies. Yeah, sure, sure. So, because the thing I keep questioning is, and so, this is something we can leave with the viewers to ponder, or sorry, the listeners to ponder after I, after we wrap up, but you know, in the same way, we have the LCBO here in, in Ontario, and we see these, you know, hugely expensive prices for wine. And that's even considering that there's a couple other, you know, players like the beer store, which is actually a collective of 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 um, of, of um, beer companies. There's the wine rack, etc. But there's not a whole lot of other competition in like in like the 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 um, wine and alcohol spirit space and so you have the lcbo as this monopoly sure but then an even bigger monopoly that we have in canada is the healthcare system and i'm going to leave you with this there was a family member of mine who was very 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 ill about 10 or 15 years ago with cancer okay the only reason that she could get to an ontario uh, in an in a, in our Ontario system, the only way that she could get to an MRI machine quickly was because she was in. Uh, it was critical because she if she has cancer. Okay, wow. if you don't have cancer, you're going to be waiting three or six months to get to that MRI machine, and that's and I think that's part of uh, uh, you know that's a has to do with the fact that our healthcare system in Ontario is essentially a monopoly. So there's no, because there's not other comp, there's no other, you know, private companies competing. We're, we're stuck in a place where we don't have to have a high level of service. Now, I agree with you and it's a major problem, but I think we are so used to solutions being financially based. We're so used to the solutions or problem being, well, looking at this problem and saying, well, the problem is if someone was making money because they had a better MRI system on the go, then that competition would be good for society. But I think we need to think about different forms of motivation than mm -hmm. that. You know, we have all, I mean, I don't know anyone who hasn't had a family member lost to cancer, hasn't mm -hmm. had someone lost to cancer. I think there are so many people in this world who care enough about the damage cancer causes that they will organize to make these systems as well as they possibly can. And I think we need to think about these other forms of motivation. When we look at the states, I mean, the states is an awful example for so many things, but it's spectacularly <laughs> yes. terrible for Medicare. You won't necessarily get a better wait time than that. You'll just pay the, you know, a quarter of your annual fee if, uh, income to get it while getting just as bad service. 
Uh, that's my impression. And yes, there are exceptions to that, but that's for the 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 you know the super billion, millionaire billionaire class, <laughs> you know, who can get really a lot faster than that. So we need better systems. But I blame that not on a lack of competition, not on the fact that there's no monopoly. I blame that on the fact that we have conservative politicians who chip away at our medical system every every chance they get in with the ultimate goal of privatizing it. So because they keep chipping away and we don't have the number of systems, of machines, of technicians that we need to run the system effectively, and that's what we're faced with, it needs better funding, not competition. Interesting. Very interesting thoughts. Trevor, this has been very interesting. Uh, you know, as I said, when I was in my 20s, I was very, very much aligned to the NDP and the left. And over the last couple of years, maybe it's the company I keep or maybe it's the experiences, the, the, the life experiences that I've acquired as I've grown into my, you know, mid and late 30s here. But I have become a little bit more centrist and in cert certain ways, as I said, leaning, still leaning towards the left, some to the right. Um, but in this particular conversation that we've had today, you've made some very compelling points. And I'm kind of little, the little lefty Andrews kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, perking up today and saying, maybe I have maybe I have to reconsider some of my philosophy. So you've done a very I feel good like I feel like at the bottom, the right is asking you to believe the worst parts of human nature. It's asking you to believe that people are lazy and they will not work. And the only thing that motivates them is starving and freezing to death. Otherwise, they won't work. And if they won't work, they won't contribute to society. That's the underlying, the bedrock feeling from the right. Whereas mm -hmm. the left is going, we have faith that everyone wants to contribute mm -hmm. to a functional, healthy life if they're mm -hmm. just... Interesting. Trevor, this has been a great hour. Do you have, as we wrap up, do you have any finer, final words of wisdom before we uh, hit the stop button here? See a lot of theater, everybody you'd be shocked because I find that everything that I look for when I'm watching movies and I'm going, gosh, why don't you do stuff that's more important, that's better written, that's all those concerns that I have when I see movies and I go, they're not good enough. That's playing out in theater. In theaters, I mean, people only do theater because they care so much and they want to tell stories. So do check it out. Joe, and that's a great way to say, you know what, Trevor is, he's huge in the Burlington and Hamilton community. Um, if you have an opportunity, go check out Tottering Biped Theater. And for anyone who's in, in Toronto, like even myself, like I, you know, I was, uh, woke up to the fact that I hadn't seen some theater for a while. And I, I went down to the Crows Theater um, a couple weeks ago and saw a fantastic um, presentation of Metamorphoses. So, um, you know, which is a kind of a Greek um, play. So there's there to your point. I think you know if we can take away one message here is go out there to those individual you know those small time film festivals or to those little independent theaters, black box theaters, and go go see some culture because you will um, end up walking away with some philosophical thoughts to take with you. Um, so Trevor, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very interesting philosophical conversation. And for anyone who's interested in these societal issues, these political issues, these economic issues, definitely check out other episodes of the Lockdown Lowdown. This is Andrew and special guest Trevor signing off for now. Thank you very much for listening.